You are listening to a Wavel Room podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you find your podcasts. But if that's not enough for you, head to our website where you can read our articles, follow us on social media, or come and join us at one of our live events. In this podcast, we interview Admiral Sir Tony Radikin, Chief of the Defence Staff. He is the professional head of the UK's armed forces and is a principal military advisor to the Prime Minister and the Secretary of State for Defence. In this podcast, he talks about his reflections on his time as First Sea Lord, what the future looks like for defence, and also talks about some of the workforce and leadership challenges each of the single services are facing. Sir, thank you very much for having us today. I want to start by talking about the fact that this is your second podcast, I believe, with us. Yep, gosh. First one was as the first Sea Lord. You're the only single service chief to have been interviewed by us for a podcast. Is correlation causation? <laughs> That's an interesting one. I don't think, I don't, I don't want to disappoint you. Uh, just at the start of the interview, James and Charlotte, good to see you again. I, I'm just thinking about that. I don't think that is necessarily the process that was that that was the route to become CDS. But I think it's inter- it's interesting. It feels very comfortable to be to be having another conversation with you. I'm a big fan of the Wavel Room. I'm a big fan of having these different channels about how we speak to each to each other. I'm a big fan of supporting what I think the Wavel Room is about, which is a, a, a thoughtful conversation with people in defence and around defence. So it's very good to be here. Oh, it's good to have you here. So thank you very much. I suppose our first question really is, you know, how, how are you? Six months, just about? Six no, so it's not even six months. So okay. just over five. I think you probably have to ask my family about I, I, I'm, I'm well. So I, it's a privilege to be in this job. It's exhilarating. Ukraine is obviously taking up a lot of time. There's an enormous responsibility so that we do our best for Ukraine, but there's also an exhilaration in terms of that, that campaign, that war, how we, the dynamic involved there is, is exhilarating, how you work with government, how you work with other parts of government. That's, that's all exhilarating. And then there's, there's this broader piece about being alongside the permanent secretary, David Williams, working even more closely with ministers and how you how you contribute to, to, to leading and running the department. So that all feels a privilege, a responsibility, and it's something, yeah, to, I think I may have said before, no, not to be intimidated by those things. I don't mean it in an arrogant sense, but to try and enjoy that and contribute as best as you can. And then there's something as you get older, you do need to spend more time looking after yourself. So there's a, there is a straightforward, and I'm, I'm probably not as good as I should be, whether it's the sort of basics of fitness, eating well and so on, but it, it, there's a personal element there. So I've always, I've been lucky. I've always slept well. And I can assure you, I'm still sleeping well. <laughs> so, so, so it feels okay. Well, you know, on that, sir, it's a lot of responsibility. I mean, being a single service chief was an awful lot of responsibility before that, but stepping up to chief of the defense staff, head of the profession, over 200,000 people working for you. And you still sleep well at night. How different is it running a single service to running all of the services so i mean it's very different here is the short answer you have got this big responsibility but you've got big teams around you and you've got superb people around you and gosh you 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 look to them for, for for help and support and then the other piece is the step up and i'm sure this is this is the normal journey for every cds there is there's a natural comfort and sense that yes, there are big jobs running your services and, and, and enormous jobs and enormous responsibilities, but you can put your arms around it and, and it feels much neater and straightforward. And then, then when you expand that, this massive thing called the whole of defense, well, it is, it is a bit more complex. It is more demanding as to how you you do the basics of leadership of getting stuff done and you've got a different relationship. So I think when you're a single service chief, you have direct authority and, and a power base and you have influence, but it's a more modest influence. When you become the CDS, you have less power as a direct thing 
and you've got much more influence. And therefore you then have to work through how do you then get stuff done in a different dynamic? And the dynamic is, is the first one is actually you work alongside the permanent secretary. So can I, can I align with David Williams? Can we both support the secretary of state? And then can we align a bit more with the vice chief and the second permanent secretary? Because that's, that's then the top team. And then how, how do you work that in order to, to get the most out of these amazing single services, to get the most out of these other parts of the empire, you know, the procurement agency in terms of DNS, the defense infrastructure organization, the defense nuclear organization, they're all part of the fabric and and you, you want to get the most out of all of them. So it's not a competition. It's not a control thing. It's how can you harness all of that in order to deliver for, for the department and government and the nation. Just more thinking about sort of the next step. So going from first sea lord to CDS, was there any decisions that you made during your tenure as first sea lord that you look back and think, that wasn't the right thing at the time or... You know, I've, I've learned a lot of lessons from my time as Percy Lord. And which of those do you think, oh, I wish I'd done something different then? Or are there any lessons you take forward to being Chief of Defence? Yeah, I think, I think there's, there are lots. So my big formative experience in terms of being a three-star, four-star in defence was very much, I was the Chief of Staff at Joint Forces Command, as it was then, and I came back to the Navy an amazing institution, but I felt that we could get more out of the Navy. It could be more confident. It could be more assertive. It could deliver even more. There's this sort of latent potential. It felt to me that actually there were more opportunities than the organization came across. It, it came across that it was, it was a little bit defensive. It was understandably really worried about money. It was, it was worried about the number of people and could it recruit enough people in it. And it felt to me that it, it, it was feeling a little bit anxious. It had this exciting future ahead of it. And, and, and I want to pay tribute to the previous first sea lord. Phil Jones had set the Navy on a course to actually make the most of this carrier area, carry on with the nuclear piece. And then we probably, there's a gang, we kind of pushed the Royal Marines a bit further in terms of the future commando force. If you, if you take those sort of big, big headlines, then you, you sort of learn from that as second sea lord and as first sea lord. And I suppose I have a, a sense the the bureaucracy at times, and I, and I think this is six now, you get told these orthodoxies, which I'm not sure that they're accurate. So the classic one is when you're trying to introduce some change, there's an orthodoxy in defense that says, oh, you could be careful here. You might be taking a lot of risk. And it ignores the fact that the path that you're on might be even riskier. There's a, there's a reverence to the status quo. And when you want to adjust slightly, that suddenly is high risk and carrying as you are is, 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 is terribly sensible. Now you've got to, you've got to assess those, but I'm not, but it's the orthodoxy of doing different is suddenly high risk. Another orthodox is you might be going too fast. I dream of going too fast. If we go too fast, we will slow it down. But it, the, 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 again, the orthodoxy is, oh, you've got to be careful here. Don't go too fast. Rubbish. What a brilliant position to be in where you could then slow it down and calibrate. And that's what I think is, I kind of learned as one SL. It's, to, it's just this phenomenal potential in the organization. The, the other example I would give is if we were, if we were back in staff college and we went through an exercise which was, let's perceive a pandemic and how would we go about that? I think the natural condition would be, right, we'll focus on our primary outputs and we'll turn a lot of things down. Actually, I think what all three, I think what defense showed was it could respond to the demands of that pandemic. So it actually did more. It carried on doing all the things that it normally does. And it looked after its people and it served the nation. And, and, and this, this latent potential that is in the organization and how can we really make the most of that to make us an even better organization, uh, and better serve the nation. So I think there's something that those were some of the big things that I learned and 
And then you, what could I have done better? There is this unlocking that potential. Yeah, I, it's a moral thing. It's a professional thing that I, I don't think that I did as much as I could have done to unlock the potential that exists in the Navy. I think that, yeah, that partly because there's a sense that you, you, you are going too fast or you're trying to do too much or you're trying to, and I'm, I'm skeptical of those caveats. The more I think about it, the more I think the potential in defense because of the quality of the men and women that we have, both civil servants and military is phenomenal. And actually we can do even more. And it's not always an answer. Uh, yeah, the answer isn't, I can do a bit more if you give me a, a few more people and a bit more money. With what we've got, we can do even, and we're, we're, we're brilliant, but we can be even better. How, how are you going to unlock that over your tenure? Some of it is being more, is being demanding. So some of it is, is trying to push back on those traditional excuses. Some of it is trying to also prioritize. So what are the things that we really want to do? The conversation I've been having with David Williams is you, you come into this job, you look at the, the, the machinery, it's a, it's a defense plan that you then use as your instructions to these big commands. You look at it a bit more carefully and there seem to be in some of the original drafts, it looked like there were about 120 priorities. That seems a bit, that seems a bit tricky and, and that maybe you haven't quite prioritized. We've tried to go to three distinct priorities. First one is deliver the integrated review. Government's given us some extra money. It's given the clarity of an integrated review. Guess what? I think it wants us to get on and deliver against that integrated review. And that's a responsibility for all of us. Second thing is we're a P5 nation. So a permanent member of the Security Council, and we're a nuclear power. And nuclear is a particular attribute that the UK has. And it's, it's almost, it's a lodestone. And we have to protect it and nurture it and ensure that it's always there to deliver for government. And there were some enormous changes going on in terms of our nuclear, the overall enterprise. And therefore, we have to manage those and strengthen that and keep that super, super safe and super operational to be able to respond if, if, if that was ever required. And then the third element is, is then just looking at, at, at this, this thing called defense and saying, right, what, what are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? Where, where do we want to get even better? We want to be more lethal. We want to be more deployable. We want to be more integrated. And let's get after that. And that might mean tempering some of the other things that we, we all on the other 117 things on the list, because that's going to be our focus. And so those are kind of three what's. And then there are three how's, which is right, transformation. We're in a technological age. Yes, we want to change. We want to move things on. But the one thing that we really want to focus on is data and digital. So don't have a bundle of things that you, we, we want to adjust Project Castle. We want to modernize our personnel structures let's let's put that into the organization but the one thing that the, the top of defense can do and be demanding about and look to support is digital because we know that then has impact across the whole organization and down into the organization the second one is the culture so how can we have a culture that genuinely looks to unlock the potential of every individual because it doesn't feel that we're achieving that and that's a massive shame for the individuals and for the institutions. And then the third one is how can we right size and reshape and reorganize? So this, yeah, we're, we're in head office. Is this the right head office for modern defense and for what we need going forwards? Can we perceive of a slightly smaller head office? And what, yeah, can we, we've had an amazing journey with joint forces command and strategic command. How do we right-size that and, and have the right structures so that it can carry on being this enormous enabler for the rest of defense? And how does it strengthen integration across defense? So can we look at ourselves about right-sizing and, and, and sharpening up the bits of the organization that need to be adjusted in structural terms? So there's three what's, three how's, and then, then the hard bit of actually getting on after it. It sounds a little bit like you would push 
towards maybe removing some of those organizations or pulling some of them together. Is that, is that a step too far? Do you think? So could we have a fully integrated single defense force? I don't think so. No, I don't. I actually, I think, I think it's a fair debate, but when you look at the size of the institutions and what they are, and if we talk about the frontline commands, these amazing entities that are a fabric of our constitution, they deliver for the nation and how the nation perceives its armed forces, Navy, Army, and an Air Force. And they're the size of a Whitehall department. They've got these big leaders at the top. They've got sophisticated governance. So they have non-exec directors that are champions of industry of FTSE 100 companies. And then they're laced through with these amazing men and women who do something remarkable, which is that they put uniform on and they offer to serve their country, even if it involves them as individuals putting themselves in harm's way. And I think tampering with, with such crucial elements and what they represent and the success that we have, I wouldn't want to kind of say, well, actually there's a super organizational model where you could blob them all together. But I would go for simplicity, which is, I think we can have fantastic UK defense. If we have an amazingly good army, a superb Navy, a brilliant air force, a superb strategic command, a really good organization that buys our equipment and support, fantastic defense nuclear organization, fantastic defense infrastructure organization, these, these big blobs. And I want all of them to feel confident to get after being the best that they can be. And I want to harness that and pull it all together as this big thing called defense. And it's felt to me in the past that there's been a competition, constant competition, either between the services, uh, and sometimes there is for resource, but then there's also a competition with a head office that wants to be controlling these organizations. I'm in charge because I'm, I'm in head office and you have to do what I say. And, and I think we've, we've gone to a more conventional model under David Williams, where you have what's called a defense delivery group, where he chairs it with me. And then you've got these big top level budget holders, and that pretty much embraces the whole of defense. And then if we can all agree to do stuff, then actually there's a chance that it will happen. And then we support each other in order to enable it to happen. And this head office thing should be as light as possible. It should do the fundamentals of prioritizing in terms of what are the really important things in defense, allocating resources, giving direction, and then allowing these magnificent organizations to get on with it because they will do it a lot better than me interfering and, and other people here wanting to control everything. And that's what I think we're trying to do, but it's hard. It's hard to make things simple and clear enough. And it's also hard sometimes to say, well, actually, I need to let go of this and this organization will deliver it far better than we can. And I think we all know and understand that at your different levels of command. And generally, I think we all learn, I mean, it may just be me, but generally the less I interfere, the better it is. So I think there's something there about sort of following that direction and path. And I think. If everything ran the way you said it did, then problems wouldn't exist. But of course they do. And not everything is as rosy as you know, people make mistakes. We try and have a, a safe to fail environment in the military. But when people do make mistakes, what does accountability in the MOD look like under your leadership? So I think that's really interesting. So there's two points there. I think we have a habit of talking up the, the problems and the bad things more than we should. There's a, we're not as good as we should be in terms of celebrating our successes. And when we do celebrate it, we kind of keep, tend to keep it in stove pipes rather than all of us. We're about to have eight and a half thousand soldiers across the whole of Europe at a point of tension where it is strategically really significant that we're contributing alongside NATO partners in such an extraordinary way whether it's a squadron of tanks in Finland, two squadron tanks in, in Estonia with both battle groups. Then we've got these efforts on the eastern flank, Bulgaria along, alongside our American friends. 
in Poland, we were there with the with the Royal Engineers. Then we've been providing air defence. Then we've had policing over the top. And now we're going to have an additional squadron of tanks. And, then, and you can keep going on. And then there's a, there's a big exercise in terms of looking at divisional manoeuvre and something that we, we need to practice and get super confident with. And that that's big for the army, but it's actually big for UK defence. The prime minister needs to know about that and needs to be aware of it. There's lots of tactical activity there, but it's really strategically significant at a strategic moment. So let's get better at celebrating. And then on the, when things go wrong, I think there's a, there's a scale. We've got to be honest about if you want to invest in these amazing men and women who 99 times out of a hundred will do it better than the, than the layer above doing it. And it's, well, actually you have to accept that, that with that might go the odd mistake, but it's better than, than the super controlling organization. It's better for the individuals. It's better outcomes. It definitely is faster. So the problem when you in put this control mechanism in is, is the more control you add, the slower the velocity. And one of the problems we have in defense is we're not doing things fast enough in an age where we need to do things more quickly. So you've got to be really careful when you try to go down this safe, safe route. But I think there's, if you follow it all the way through, you also have to be professional and you have to have a cultural consequence. So if you're a senior leader, well, actually there should be, you have these incredible privileges, these incredible responsibilities, but with that goes, goes authority and accountability. And we, we should be much clearer on that. I, I have a dilemma. I was involved with Lord Levine when he did his reviews and we had a debate about, you know, in the Navy, there, there are three people that get sacked in the Navy. And I don't know if this is, this is all that you have to get right to run a good Navy. Or this is something we should be deeply concerned about because it means that the hierarchy is not held to account. The three people are the pusser, the logistician. So if you don't have the, you don't, if you don't have the bullets and you don't have the food, the pusser gets a sack. If the ship, the submarine or whatever runs aground, the navigator's job, he or she gets a sack and the commanding officer gets a sack. The, the answer is that's all you need to run a really good Navy, get those people able to do the job and you'll be fine. Or whether or not, guess, guess what? These, these people who sit above those three individuals, actually they should be held responsible. And, and, and maybe we have to toughen up some of the culture to make it clearer that yes, you have the privileges of these additional responsibilities, but there's also an accountability that goes with that. And, and, and I don't mean this in a sort of macho, brutal sense. It's just that professional organizations are quite clear with, with consequences and reward. And I think we have lots of reward, lots of privileges, and I think it's perfectly respectable to have some consequences. And then if we follow that through, why can't we sometimes do that? Well, we sometimes can't do it because we're not clear enough as to who really is in charge or, and yeah, when you get to the senior level. Well, I was sort of in charge, but actually it was also this big committee that did it. And then, and then it starts to, starts to worry me that actually you've then broken some of the other aspects that we know about successful leadership and successful organizations, which is the clarity of the command and control. And, and so I think it's all, it's all mixed up together, but that's, that's, that's sort of where it is in my brain as to, as to some of the things that we might need to do. Do you think the simplicity of all the services posting cycles has, has an impact on that? Because most of us do two years and then we move on to another job and the, the consequences of some of our decisions may not be felt for quite a while. Do, is that an issue that we need to address? So I'm looking here very guiltily because I think that definitely is a factor and I'm somebody that's bounced through job to job and I'm sure there are people saying, bloody Radikin, if he'd stayed longer, he would realize what a mess he would have made of it. So, you know, uh, or he did make of it. So I think there is something there. There's a tension. It's hard because we need to move people through the organization, but uh, can you retrospectively maybe change the way we report on people or do we have to yeah, yeah, hosts do something in a different way? I wonder. I agree. I think it's hard. So I think if you look at officers, I think there's a real value as a junior mid-ranking officer that you, you actually need to get lots and lots of experience. 
And I think the bouncing through with these very bright, able leaders that want to learn, enjoy lots of different experiences and, and embrace that to become even stronger leaders, that feels very strong. And something. when you then carry on up through the ranks, I think, I think it then starts to adjust where, and we've got better, we've got better than where we were. And it's the postings piece with the, well, you need to have reports from this different area and you need to have reports from different people. And then, and then the bureaucracy can then give you the big, the big tick to move on. I think we've got a little bit better of people in very senior positions that might do that job for three, four, five years, and we don't need you to do a different job. We'll embrace all, all that we know about you. And by the way, you've been in the organization for 20 years already, so we've got fantastic knowledge about you and yes, we'll then move you on. So I think that's adjusting. And then I think for our NCOs and other ranks, again, it's, it may be a, a, a different scale. So how do we cultivate that we want people to have specialist skills and we, we might even promote them because we want them to stay in, in the role that they're doing or in the post that they're doing. Now that's very true of some of those niche areas particularly the new ones in terms of cyber. We've got some amazing people who are cyber warriors, but they leave their source branch in order to go and do the thing that we desperately need. And then in order to promote, they have to go back to the source branch to do something that we're, that we feel is less important for them, but they need it so that they can, they can look after their families and get better rewarded. There's something weird going on there when it's us, the system that's imposing that. So how do you break out of that? And, and can we have honest conversations as to what is the bureaucracy and it's just for ease of administration and it's the way that we've been doing things and what might be a better way of doing and unified career management is one route, but I think it's also just being brutally honest about saying, right, we, we might want you to, to do this job for three or four years and we'll still make it exciting and interesting. And we might even want you to do it for, for slightly longer and we'll promote you in the role because we want to reward you as an individual and, and, and you're at that stage where you are expecting to move on and get more reward. And, and at the moment, it feels like the structure governs, the structure and the process governs everything rather than the outcome hmm. of what, what we as leaders might want and what the individuals uh, might be best suited to. So it's a long answer, but that, that's, that, that's, that's where I think we are. Is there something that... Now, sitting as Chief of Defence Staff, you look across the single services, Stratcom included, and do you think that there's lessons that they could learn from each other? If you were to take the best out of each single service and say, you know, Navy, I want you to be a little bit more like this from the Army, what would it be from each of the single services? Oh, that's a, that's a really, yeah, that's, and that's, and that's a really dangerous question, isn't it? This, is, this would be much, much better to answer in the bar, so not, not in a podcast. So I, so I think the first one is just to accept that these entities are, are really strong in themselves, that they're amazing institutions. And that's, yeah, the three single services and their history and the past and the ethos and what goes with that. And one of the best things that you do in defense is when you go to a passing out parade. And it's kind of, if only we could give everybody that injection of enthusiasm and the pride of the, the individuals passing out, but even more so their families and their friends. So what we do is something special and that's, that's what the army, navy and the air force in, in my mind represent. Then you've got this more modern organization called strategic command. And that, they, they, if you just look over the, the last year or so, we were reflecting on this with Patrick Sanders moving on. They've got the medics who have had this phenomenal impact across defense and, and wider in terms of the nation because of this dreadful pandemic. You then throw up a really difficult operational problem exiting Afghanistan. And, and you've got this amazing organization called PGHQ, which holds it together, brings largely an air and land effort under real period of stress to, to deliver for the nation. Then you've got this other part of STRATCOM called Defense Intelligence, which has this incredible role working with our US partners, advertising what Russia is intending to do and what it means and what it might entail. So I think the strategic command, they're, 
I would want strategic command to revel in these crown jewels of defense and have the confidence that it doesn't need to have the identities that an army, navy, and air force naturally have. So that's sort of one answer to your question. I think the army has got this confidence and I think it's, it's a confidence born of its operational and tactical prowess that actually it can go through difficult conflicts. It can go through difficult times, but the arm, the army stays strong. And, and I think that confidence I'd sometimes, I would, I would want to supplant into, into the Navy uh, and the Air Force. I used to worry that the Navy had such difficult campaigns as the army was leading. Well, actually, would it have the, 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 the confidence to, to stick with it and push it all the way through? So that, that would be a kind of vice versa. Then the Air Force strikes me that it's got, it, it is the more modern of, of the three services. It feels more comfortable. It looks more comfortable to me in a, in a cultural sense. It's got the excitement of going up into space. It's got the excitement of these incredible pieces of equipment and, and a comfort with that. So can, can you supplant some of that to an army that at times might look a bit rigid and traditional and, you know, can, can, we, can we do that? And then it gets a really hard one, the Navy. I think the Navy's consistency around these big things called nuclear aircraft carriers, amphibiosity, and the simplicity of that as a strategic argument, and that that applies whether you're looking at the UK and how we protect the UK, or it applies about how you go out into the world and, and the comfort with whether that's warfighting or it's, it's in this operate in this integrated operating concept world and just taking that strategic clarity and confidence. I'd want to put some of that into, into the other services. So does that. Have I navigated? I hopefully I have offended anybody. <laughs> I don't think you've offended. But, 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 but managed to, to to at least stay honest to your to to, to, to your question. So you you talked about difficult campaigns. So the army came to the end of a difficult campaign in Afghanistan. We've had a few people write on the website about the fact that we haven't really conducted a thorough review into the army's performance in Afghanistan, or probably defence's performance in Afghanistan. Clearly we're busy at the minute. There's an awful lot of other stuff going. There's a danger that if we don't conduct a review, there are lessons that the army needs to learn and defense needs to learn that we'll miss. Do you think we should have a review? I think we, I think we have had a series of reviews. So the director of operational capability, I think the land warfare center, I think that what goes on in terms of academia, the think tanks, I think our international partners, I think staff college. Our NCOs who, who take with them their experience of what they've learned and what, what they could do better, what went well, I think that's, that's almost organic in the organization. So I think that's, and I think, I think often that is more important culturally than the big formal, super formal review and here are the 10 lessons and thou must do it. So I think that feels to me that that's almost more important and that that exists in the army. They, they, I don't, I kind of, I'm trying to think everybody that I know that has served in Afghanistan, I think tends to have quite strong views about the things that went well and their pride in the tactical courage, the camaraderie, the ethos the toughness when things were really difficult. Some of those forward operating bases, which were literally out on a limb and being attacked and the ability to keep themselves safe and to fulfill their duty, even at the, 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 in the most extreme circumstances and the confidence that comes with that, the paying homage to, to their comrades that have lost their lives or been injured. And again, the confidence that comes with the ability to deal with that in these extraordinary situations, but doing it in a way that is focused on what was my mission there? 
and that actually these are sacrifices that have to be borne in order to complete difficult missions. And then some honesty about things that people felt could, could have gone better, whether it's the, the organization, whether it's the tactics, whether it's the equipment. I think those things are, have been endemic all, all the way through. And so I think that to me exists and it feels that it's, it's, it's been alive and well. But I also think there's an element of, of them moving on and, and I don't mean moving on and, and not reflecting. I think there's a, there's a, there's a moving on and saying, actually, this was an incredibly tough task. It was an incredibly important task and, and it was successful in some of its core elements. So how to combat terrorist threats to the UK, how to do that at range, how to take on some of the toughest tasks, how to work with international colleagues. That those, those aspects and the success of that has to be embraced. I think we've got to be honest that the departure was not the one that was originally sculpted. And again, I think that's probably not surprising because things don't go perfectly to plan and particularly in the most difficult missions. And then it feels to me that you then, you then have to regroup and and then say, right, where are we now in the world? And what, what is it now that we require the British army? I would say you see that it's manifest. If you just look at the last couple of years, the, the army's response to COVID, incredibly strong, really important because it embraces the, the whole nation. So it is England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. In, in a way that is more tangible and stronger than maybe other parts of defence. Then you have the army's response to, to pitting and, and the departure of Afghanistan, incredibly difficult task, but you look at the professionalism and the compassion they're still shown in the most extraordinary circumstances. Then you come to where we are now with, with Ukraine and there's a war in Europe. How do we support NATO? How do we respond to, to better supporting Ukraine? Again, the army to the forefront, whether that's the strengthening across the whole of um, Europe, as, as I mentioned, that the eight, eight and a half thousand are about to deploy now, or whether it's the mechanics of, of getting lethal aid into Ukraine on the back of this relationship that we have with the Ukrainian armed forces. They, these are all strong elements. You can then look further afield, the long range reconnaissance group in Mali, again, an, another difficult area. In, in, in a very different part of the world. And then you look at, again, you come back to tactical examples about people pulling off difficult missions and have, have we got confidence all the way through the organization about that? And does that go all the way through to a prime minister who has to, and a secretary of state for defense, who has to agree that deployment and, and, and the risks that are involved there, but this is a mission uh, worth fulfilling on behalf of the nation. And then you start to look around, well, okay, well, how does that then look in the future? And how do we take all those qualities and adjust them to the threats that we face? And what does that look like in the modern world? And I, so I think there's this kind of review, reflection, be honest, celebrate the successes, learn from the difficult aspects that didn't go as well as we wanted, and then move that on to the new set of missions. And what are the new demands? And, and some of the new demands are not all in the warfighting space. They're in the technical space. How do we embrace cyber? How do we embrace space? How do we embrace digital? You know, these kind of, these kind of buzzword things. I know, but digital and data. And that's what I think Future Soldier tries to do. So let's invest in the army so we can have an even more lethal army, a more deployable army, more impactful army on top of the brilliant army that we've got at the moment. And then the, what does that look like? Well, actually it looks like a massive reorganization of the army, massive transformation program, but also how do you make it exciting? So if you're a young soldier, you're in a brilliant army, but you're going to be in an even better army in the future. And you're going to have some of the coolest kit and you're going to be able to operate in all parts of the world. And you're still going to have the, the importance of these, these crucial missions. You're still going to do that as part of this amazing thing called British army, part of British defense but you're serving your nation and, and, and you're keeping us safer and you're adding to the prosperity of the UK and you're supporting our, our allies and partners. And, and, and let's make that exciting and something that's worthwhile. So I, 
to me, it's, it's all joined together. And then, but, but it, there has to be a right, let's look to the future whilst reflecting on the past, but don't, don't wallow in whether it's an extraordinarily successful past or whether or not it's been a difficult past. So I think as per Seaboard, you were really, really attuned in what the government strategy was and how the Navy could be more aligned with what the government did. Look at Global Britain and how successful a uh, carrying strike group was and still is in upholding um, the government's strategy. And then look at AUKUS, which was a huge moment during your tenure. What do you see as the armies or the RAF's potential AUKUS moment? So that's a really interesting question. So I think AUKUS was audacious in terms of Australia taking a very strategic outlook, taking those conclusions and then being willing to act on those conclusions to the extent that some of them are, such as AUKUS, are incredibly bold because they require long-term investment. And this is exquisite technology. And to then get into a partnership with these other nuclear nations called the USA and UK. One of my challenges to the department is, right, where, where are the other audacious ideas? I mean, because we had a government, as you pointed out, that actually embraced that idea very quickly and said, right, we want to run with this. This, 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 this fits with the government agenda in all kinds of ways. I think if you come back to the Air Force, it's an Air Force that is leading the way in terms of space operations. And we all know that our everyday lives are impacted by this thing called space, but we know there are vulnerabilities there. And we've got a responsibility with other nations to keep space safe as an operating environment so that we can enjoy our security and prosperity. So what does that look like? Well, that needs significant investment in space. It's a new space command and it's people being comfortable with space in a way that I'm not. I'm from the joint era and and I think your age group and the people coming up through have to be able to be comfortable with managing jointery, Army, Navy, Air Force, and overseeing tactical evolutions for operational and strategic effects. But they also have to embrace cyber and space in the same way. And I think the Air Force... Um, has got that with space. And I think the Air Force has also got it with FCAS, this sixth generation fighter, where we've got the magnificence of these fifth generation fighters called F-35, but we know that we need to maintain a qualitative edge in order to ensure that we've got air superiority. And then what does that look like? Well, it's, it's technologically an even better uh, version of the fifth generation fighter. And that's a lot of investment and that needs international partners to do that, whether that's Japan or, or, or other European nations. So that, that feels like an exciting future for the Air Force. If I then come to the Army, we acknowledge that the Army has to go through investment in its equipment. Too much of the Army's equipment is, is too old. It's not fit for purpose. And we have to move that on. That's what's happening. The, the, the Army's capital program is the aggregate of, of the navies and the Air Force. There's a big investment going into the Army. A lot of that investment matures in the back end of the, de of the decade. So there's a kind of trust me moment with the Army of, right, the, the Army is being invested. And, and, and the, I, that's normal. We can't invest in everything at the same time. So your capital investments take a cycle. Uh, and the Army cycle is, is, is the one that's on the rise and coming up. And then that then starts to give you future soldier. So can we have an army that is more lethal, more deployable, that embraces technology in a much stronger way, that that comes down to every individual soldier that's, that, that's on operations, that has an awareness around them in a much stronger way than they currently have, whether that's operating as an individual infantier as part of dismounted close combat, which will carry on into the future, or whether it's part of maneuver forces and, and the heavier firepower that we want, which will work at a longer range. And then all of this is going to be speeded up and all of it is going to have these smaller formations that operate under a, a larger geographic area. So the notion of, of battle groups that at the moment 
operating quite quite small defined areas with quite discrete and I would say modest capabilities, can you unpack that so that you're operating over a wider front with a broader range of capabilities that you can bring to bear and that you can do that far more quickly, both to look after yourself, but also to get there more quickly and then to be more lethal and impactful when you get there. And that to me is, is going on across the whole of the army. And that's why it's a massive transformation program. You just take one example uh, that CGS was talking about the other day, which I think at the army at the moment has about 500 different variants for its vehicles and maybe more than that, maybe 561. It's, it's, it's an astonishing figure and the ambition to take all of that and to have 60 variants in the future and to do that over the next 10 years. That's just one element of future soldier. Now, in a way, that's a kind of boring equipment capability thing, but it's absolutely necessary to get the best technology and then to get after much better situational awareness, much more access to fires, much more access to deeper range fires uh, and, and, and able to speed all of that up again. That's what I think is going on. And, and by the way, that's a harder tale to tell in armies are more complex in terms of all the constituent parts, but yeah, come on, buy into it. This is a time where the army is being invested in and, and, and have the confidence of an amazing army that's going to be even better in the future. And, and the whole of UK defense is being invested in, and we're doing a brilliant job for our nation, whether it's in Ukraine, whether it's with our partnership within, within NATO, whether it's when we go further afield, the joint expeditionary force as a kind of, we're leading 10 nations as part of Europe. There's lots of things that we're doing where defense is in a classical sense and uh, a reflection of the instrument of foreign policy and of the government's national objectives. And we've got a government that is, that, that's investing in us and actually buys into what we can deliver on behalf of the nation. And that, that, that's happening everywhere. I've just come back from India on the back of a prime minister's visit where he's talking about getting closer with India. And part of that is a security relationship. Part of that is an equipment thing. Part of it is actually how can we work and operate together as, as two countries with shared values and shared interests. And all right, what does that start to look like? And that, that, that sort of positivity and taking, taking those agendas on and delivering for the nation and doing it in a way that is both meaningful and fulfilling and leads to a better result for our nation. That, that's what I think is happening. And I think hopefully it feels like that for the Army and the Air Force as well. Uh, do you think that the IR has been reinforced by what we're seeing in Ukraine? No. Because certainly from what we've seen in terms of articles submitted to the Wavell Room, there's two strands of argument that are going on. The IR was bang on, identified Russia as a short-term threat, but China as a long-term adversary that we need to adjust to. And then there are some people with the counter-narrative of, we need to now reinvest in heavy land forces. So I'll, I'll borrow, I hope he doesn't mind, uh, sort of David Williams' comment. So I think there's an element of this that if you thought the IR was quite good when it was launched, you, can't, you, you use what's going on now to confirm that. And if you thought the IR was quite poor, you use what's going on now to... to We're all to, looking to, to for our echo chamber. So I think yeah. there's a bit of that. My view, so I think one of the strengths of the IR was it wasn't just the, the usual foreign policy and security review. It embraced climate change, health security, a prosperity agenda, this technological age, and we want to be a stronger science power. So it's, it's, it's got a strength in that it's got these other strands that are woven all the way through it. I think it was right in identifying Russia as an acute threat and distinguishing China as being a, a different entity in different language, so a challenge and a competitor. I think it was also right about the way to respond to that acute threat is collective defence. Being part of the world's best ever military alliance is a very good remedy to those threats. And then I also think it was right in terms of elevating nuclear and, and how important nuclear is for the UK and, and that nuclear capability that we use not only to protect 
the UK, but also to support our NATO partners. So there are some big headlines that still feel very comfortable and they, they feel affirmatory. Then if I come down and look at some of the tactical aspects of the, the campaign, I, I see this thing about speed, this thing about modern weaponry, modern technology, and how do you combine all of that so that you can overwhelm your, your enemy? That feels really strong. And then the other piece to me, though, is we're just, we're just over a couple of months into the Ukraine war. And therefore, let's be cautious about the conclusions that we make. So can we have the humility and the confidence to say, we'll look at this to see what, what is affirmatory and what maybe has changed and is slightly different. And then when do you, when do you call that moment? Do you do it as an ongoing thing or do you, do you do it as a more substantial element when you've moved on and right now feels the right time to review it? So I think that that all of those things are going on, but I think we've got to be careful of then jumping to some tactical points about, right, the answer is, the answer is, is, is tanks. The answer is drones. The answer is this, that, and the other. I I think there's all kinds of tactical uh, Mm. elements and let's, yeah, take the time to, to reflect on that. But, but that, that, that's, I think that's where I am at the moment. And I think that's, I think that's a decent position to be in in terms of taking those big headlines, but acknowledging that there's lots that, that we will be able to learn, which might be both thermatory or actually we need to finesse and adjust. And there was another final question. So the Wave Room has been going for five years now. We've articles written from everything from Army Padres all the, room, all the way through to Royal Navy commanders. What do you want Wave Room contributors to write? That's really interesting. The, the way I look at the Wave Room is and I, and I, and I genuinely uh, mean this, which is, which is reassuring. It feels to me that it's, it's a, it's a, it's a channel for these people who are proud and interested in their own profession to, to, to actually exchange views about their profession and to do it in a way that is honest and thoughtful and is not constrained by thou must think this, that, and the other. And, and we are, we're a better organization by people being able to air their thinking and whether that's to affirm or it's to challenge or it's to, to get something off their chest because they feel strongly. And it's, I think that's, that's what it's, so I think it's about being thoughtful, being passionate and be, and having this confidence and pride in this profession of arms that we're in and that as part of that profession of arms. It involves a thinking element and we exchange thoughts and ideas and, and that's what it's about. And that's not, and, and those exchange of thoughts and ideas, not challenges to authority or to conventions or that this person is better than that person. It's just an exchange of thoughts and ideas. And we should be really comfortable with that. And we should celebrate that ability to, to do that. So thank you, Wavel Room, for helping us to exchange thoughts and ideas. So thank you very much. And that concludes our podcast with Admiral Sir Tony Radikin, Chief of the Defence Staff. Thank you for listening. The Wavel Room is free to use, but it's not free to run. If you can spare some change, head to our website and donate today so we can keep bringing you the content we know you love. Thank you.